Newton was the complete opposite of a Christian. He was just always kind of amen, praise God, you know, the Lord is awesome kind of person. And he's best friends with Cooper, who always wanted to kill himself, literally. Was so depressed, he wouldn't leave the house for years and years and years. And But he, out of his depression and pastoring from this godly man, he had these amazing theological truths flowing out of him. And one of them is that song, which is, Behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. And to those who are, to those who are his, um, sometimes his providence looks frowning, meaning sometimes life stinks. <laughs> and uh, Cooper felt that with body ailments and sickness. But he was trying to trust and believe that behind the harsh realities that God was giving him, God was pleased with him in Christ. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Great song. A little hard to sing now, but <laughs> those minor keys. Yeah, yeah, scooting back from the edge. I'm not William Cooper. I would like to continue to live for a while. Um, let's turn to John. We'll turn to John 2, even though we're going to start with the last verse of chapter 1 there. But A couple weeks ago, I think it's been, I guess, Three weeks ago, actually, we we deliberately skipped the most significant verse of that last paragraph in chapter 1 of John's Gospel. And I'm sure it's not right here in the top of our minds anymore. So let's just recap. We're going to pick up, um, I think I'll just pick up with verse 51, but let's remember the story there in that last paragraph of John chapter 1. Jesus has called his first two disciples. They decide to leave to go to Galilee. And um, one of these first disciples, Philip, does what we see this pattern developing. And he goes and he gets his friend, Nathaniel. Nathaniel, you're not going to believe that we have found the Messiah. Yeah, where's he from? Oh, he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, no. <laughs> you, you got, there's a mistake. Not that, could anything good come out of Nazareth? The Messiah is not supposed to come from Nazareth. Nazareth is of ill repute. That doesn't make any sense. But Philip says, come and see. Come and see. So, so Philip convinces Nathaniel, his friend, to come back to Jesus with him. And when Nathaniel gets there, in his mind, he's never met Jesus. He's never seen Jesus. Jesus should have no clue who he is. But Jesus says, Behold, a true Israelite, Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. Nathaniel's taken aback. This man seems to know me, but we've never met. And he says, Wow, you are the Messiah. Truly. He says, I don't know you. Have you seen me? And, and Jesus says, yeah, I saw you yesterday when Philip came to call you underneath the fig tree. But he wasn't there. So, so Philip, or Nathaniel, is putting the pieces together. This man has some strange supernatural knowledge of me that he shouldn't have. And so he confesses, you're the Messiah. You're the King of Israel. <clears throat> Jesus, though, turns around and expresses his astonishment at Nathaniel. And that's where we're going to pick up. Uh, let's, let's actually start in verse 49 with Nathaniel's statement. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And Jesus said to them, Now draw some water out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, 
Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory. His disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your blessing at this hour. We pray that you would come, that your spirit would be here. That as someone said, when the spirit is there, preaching is easy. Father, I pray that preaching would be easy tonight because you're present with us and moving in our hearts and opening our eyes to this passage, giving us just wondrous sights of you, lifting us up to to higher places in our hearts, Father, where we want to be like you, where we see you for who you are and see and feel the the guilty weight of our sin and thrust that upon Christ. Lord, let, let all that transaction happen tonight through the preaching of your word. Amen. So Jesus can't believe, back to verse 51, well, he can believe, but he's surprised that Nathaniel so easily believes. This is kind of a mild rebuke. Jesus says, you will see greater things than these, Nathaniel. Just you wait. Truly, truly, I say to you, you'll see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's a curious passage. You probably know where this is going already. But uh, to, to understand what Jesus meant by that, you have to look at the story that he's quoting from. He's quoting verbatim from Genesis 25 in a story about Jacob. So keep your ribbon in John 2 there and turn back to Genesis 28. Spend a minute here. Jacob, who of course later is renamed Israel. As you turn to Genesis 28, Jacob has just tricked his dad into giving him the, the blessing of the firstborn that should have gone to his brother. And so now Isaac knows his brother's pretty mad don't know what he's going to do. He's a manly kind of man. He's a hunter. Maybe he's going to get violent here. So he sends Jacob off to find a wife in his dad's homeland, or his grandpa's homeland, really, to leave town. And so Jacob leaves his dad, and he's on his way back to where Abraham was from in Haran, right? He's going there. He's on his way. And that's where we pick up in verse 10 on his journey. 28.10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up for a pillar, and he poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz the first. Then he made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a full tenth. So Jacob stops us in the night. And he gets a rock pillow. doesn't sound very comfortable. I like my memory foam pillow. Um, actually, I like my wife's feather pillow most, but she won't share it with me. <clears throat> he drifts off to sleep. And he has a dream in which he sees... Let there be light. Uh, He had a dream in which he sees either a staircase or a ladder. Hebrew word could mean either one. Let's go with ladder. Um, It starts, the the base of it is right where he's laying on the rock, on his his rock pillow. The top of it is going straight up into heaven. And on that ladder, we'll say ladder, the angels are going up and coming down. Some are coming down from heaven to the place where he's laying. Some are leaving the place where he's laying, going up into heaven. And of course, at the very top of this 
structure, he sees a theophany, a, a, vi- a visible manifestation of the presence of God. Now, you could take that and run with that and say, oh, this means, you know, a million different sermons have come from this one text. But, but if, you, if you look, <clears throat> God, speaking through Jacob, gives us a pretty clear understanding of what this vision was intended to mean. So there are two important things to look at. What does God say to Jacob? And what does Jacob say about the vision once he wakes up? That's going to help us understand it. In the dream, God says, I'm with you. I am with you. Presence of God. And he sees him, of course. And he says, I'm going to give you the land on which you're sleeping. Okay. Then Jacob wakes and says about the vision, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. This is none other than the house of God. So he called that place Bethel, which means house of God. <clears throat> this is the gate of heaven. Okay. So Bethel. This is about Bethel. What does this mean? What does God intend for the vision to mean? He's showing Jacob the land that you're currently sleeping on is special. It's a very, very special piece of land here. This is the the promised land I'm going to give to you. And in redemptive history, it has more significance because God gave the promise to Abraham. Then in time, he reiterated it to his son Jacob, um, to, to Isaac. And now he's reiterating that promise to Jacob. And then eventually he's going to reiterate that to all 12 of Jacob's sons. So the promise is being passed along. But right here God is saying, this land is special. It's going to be your land. And most importantly, it's going to be the special land on which you and I are going to have a special fellowship relationship with. I'm here. I'm going to give it to you. So it's going to be your blessed land of being in my presence. That's why Jacob says, this is the house of God. This is sort of where God is going to live, where God is going to dwell in a special way. Put that into the broader context, this is sort of like saying, this is a partially restored Eden. What was the Garden of Eden? It was a locale of God's particular special blessing where he was going to dwell with his people, right? This is sort of a partial restoration of Eden. That's why, that's why Jacob says, this is the gate of heaven. This is the entry point of heaven. Which makes Bethel very special, doesn't it? Which one of us today, if there was a true Bethel still? You know, this is about 12 miles from Jerusalem. Where we could travel, take a plane, rent a car, drive over to Bethel. If there was a Bethel there today, where we could get out and we could see this special rock on the ground. Be a long line of people, I'm sure. And when you lay on that rock and fall asleep you see what's really happening there. That God is there. That the angels of God are surrounding you there. That they're going up and coming down from heaven. Which one of us, if that was there, would say, no, I'll keep my $3,000 and go to the beach house in Florida. And we would be there, right? We would all, whatever it takes. You go there, you see God. That's all you got to do. You go there, you see God. I think we would all do that. I think, you know, Richard Dawkins would probably do that. How amazing to be in God's house. How amazing would that be? To, to experience God's special blessing. To see the, the blessing of His angels and His imminent presence. No, no wonder Jacob builds an altar and offers a, a drink offering. It's a very special place he never wanted to get. We could say at that moment it's the most special place on all the earth. Go back to John 1, 51. Praise God, Jesus takes the exact same sentence from the lips of Jacob. And he says to Nathaniel, Boys, y'all better buckle your seatbelts, because you ain't seen nothing yet. Things are going to get a lot crazier. You're shocked that I knew where you were. Guess what? You're going to see heaven opened, first of all, which is what Jacob saw. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You heard of the Septuagint? I'm sure Dennis has talked about the Septuagint. Septuagint is the in your Bible notes. If you have little footnotes, it'll usually say LXX, Roman numerals for seventy. The Septuagint is the the, the just the common name for the Greek translation of the Old Testament. If you compare the Greek translation of Genesis twenty eight with the Greek New Testament, the angels of God ascending and descending on is word for word, down to the preposition. This is a quote of that passage, no doubt about it. Jesus is quoting here, except he misquotes it. He messed up. Gets it a little bit wrong, doesn't he? 
Jacob saw the angels of God coming up and going down on a rock, on the land, on the geography. But Jesus changes the end of the sentence to say, you're going to see that exact same thing. Heaven's open, angels coming, angels going, except it's going to be on me, on the Son of Man, which is going to be Jesus' name for himself in the Gospels. That's pretty powerful. It's no accident that in verse 13 of of chapter 2 in John, we're going to see Jesus go into the temple and clear it out. And then he's going to tell the Jews, hey guys, destroy this temple, I'll raise it in three days. And John says, by the way, he's talking about himself. He's the new temple, right? No accident that that's within 13 verses of each other. That's what he's saying here. Angels of God ascending and descending on me means, guess what? He's the true temple of God. Nathaniel, Philip, Peter, Andrew, let me just warn you. Make sure you understand what you're getting yourself into. You're going to come to see and learn that the kingdom of God is right here in me, Jesus is saying. It's me. I am the, the special place of God's presence. I am where God dwells to bless His people. I am where, I'm the place where heaven opens. I am the gate to heaven, not the temple, not the old boundaries to the land of Israel. It's, it's me. It's powerful. Take a gander. How much of the Old Testament would you say is about the land of Israel and God's people dwelling in that land and having a special relationship with Him under that umbrella? How much of the Old Testament would you say is about that? All of it? And here Jesus says, guess what? I'm the new place of blessing. It's in Jesus that heaven's open and God has revealed that we meet with the Almighty. He's the top of the ladder and the bottom of the ladder. So the land of Israel wasn't about Israel, it's about Jesus. Let me follow that up with a question. How precious was the... Think about Nathaniel here. Put your mind into a first century Jewish mindset, if we can. How precious was the land of Israel to Nathaniel, do you think? I'm sure all of us in here, I'm sure, we all love to be American, right? Probably, I do. We pledge our allegiance, we wave our flags, we shine our bumper stickers. But when set up, when set, when our patriotism is set up against first century Jewish patriotism, we don't even hold a candle to them. They were patriots to the land of Israel. They were diehard Israelites. They loved it to the core. They loved the land. I mean, it was being from Israel was their litmus test for everything. Can you enter the temple? Does God love you even? I mean, this was it for them. Are you an Israelite or not? That was everything. And they would fight till their toenails fell off and their eyeballs fell out to protect this land of Israel. You've heard of Masada and all that, right? And why did they love it? They loved it because of what Jacob saw in Genesis 28. That's why they love their land so much. They love the land of Israel because they believe that Jacob truly did see and hear this is God's place. So they fell in love with it. They believed that their land was Bethel, the house of God, a place of God's special blessing the gate of heaven for the entire earth. So, beloved, if there was a rock in Bethel, and if there was a house of God out east near Jerusalem, that we would spend our every last dime and penny to visit and frequent and meet and behold God, if we would fight and lay down our lives and count everything else as lost to protect and enjoy that spot, then why would we do anything less for Jesus Christ? Our true Bethel. It's Him, right? He's the rock. He's our Bethel. He's the final, ultimate house of God. I think Bethel should be a precious word to us. It's a good name. You, maybe you can. Everybody always wants to call their little farm something. Call your farm Bethel. No, don't actually, because your farm wouldn't be Bethel. But it should be a cool word to us. It, it, I almost suggested this hymn earlier, Near My God to Thee. Have you heard that song? It's famed to be the last song that they were playing on the Titanic as it went under the water, which we heard this week was probably a myth. But anyway, it's cool to think about. One of the lines in that is talk, talks about raising our Bethel, raising in architectural sense. Bethel is a precious word. God is with us. Bethel means God is here. Bethel means heavens are opened. Bethel means there's a gate to heaven that God is moving, that he's taking care of us. But Bethel is no rock. It's no slab of dirt. Bethel is Jesus the Christ. And where Jesus is, Bethel is. He's the house of God. Where Jesus is, there the heavens are opened. Where Jesus is, there's the gate to heaven, right? 
There's the kingdom of God. There's the power of God. There are the ministering angels of God going out to, to gather and take care of God's people. Bethel, our Jesus. And so at a very minimum, our Jesus better be as precious to us as the land was to them. Amen? Did they boast of their land and talk about their land and sing songs about how precious it was? Have you read the Psalms? Then so better we. Would they fight? Would they sell their possessions cheap? Would they lay their lives down for their land? Then so better we. Would they give anything, everything, in exchange to keep their land? Then so better we. And, and, and add that to our knowledge that Christ is not ours in the sense that the land was theirs. We don't own Him, right? We, we live in a... We live in we live in the land of Jesus, so to speak, knowing that we don't rightfully belong here. We're like the per- still thinking about the Titanic, I guess. We're like the person who wins the lottery and goes to their first ever rich person dinner. You know, we don't even know how to button our jacket right. Like we do not. We just feel this feeling: we don't belong here. These aren't my people. What am I doing here? It's awkward. This isn't. This isn't where I belong. You know. That's us in Christ. It's like you almost have that feeling of. I'm, I'm a poor wretch. Here I am with the king. Like You have this feeling of, I don't deserve this. I wasn't born into this. We didn't inherit this. So we sing, amazing love. How can it be that you, my king, should die for me? Do you love him tonight? I don't mean, does, does your mind say, well, sure I love him. I mean, does... Does your blood pump red hot as we talk about the glories of Christ like it did the day that two terrorists flew airplanes into our own buildings and and killed their own people? And you know you felt that, just that patriotism pumping through your veins, right? I love America. Do, Do you have that heat ten times over for our precious Bethel? He is our house of God. How much, I love America, but, but how much more precious ought Jesus to be than this land in which we live? I'm not saying that to diminish our patriotism. I'm saying that to exalt the preciousness of Christ. America is not Bethel. The United States of America is not the house of God, although that Second Chronicles passage is misquoted all the time. Neither is it the gate of heaven, but Jesus is. That, that's verse 51. Only four hours to go. We should be good. Now, the next several chapters in John are are designed to show just that. To show us that Jesus is God's true final Bethel. Are you guys clear on what I'm saying when I say Jesus is Bethel? Just say no. It's okay. I'll just explain it more. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Now in John 2.1, and I'm going to show you why we bring this together here. And, and when you pass into verse 1, you've entered into what commentators call the Book of Signs in the Gospel of John. The Book of Signs. Um, the Book of Signs goes all the way through the end of chapter 12. Signs is John's word. Maybe Jesus had used it, I don't know. But um, we see it for the first time here in verse 12. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee. And he manifested his glory. Okay, So we're going to see Jesus doing... Powerful things. In John, we don't have that sort of staccato, miracle, 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 like we get in Mark and Luke. In John, it's like, miracle, long time to tell you about it. Another miracle, long time to tell you about it. Because these are signs for John. They're signs. Hence the name Book of Signs. So what is a sign? I think you've seen one before, I imagine. You're driving down the road, you see a sign with a... X and two R's on either side, since you took driver's ed, hopefully. <laughs> you know what that means, that coming up ahead. There's, it, this is a, what is this? This is an indicator pointing you to the reality of a railroad crossing. So, guess what? You better slow down because there's something coming up. So it's an indicator, a pointer to the existence of a reality, right? That's what a sign is all about. In John, Jesus' miracles and dialogues are signs that show you and point out to you the hidden divine glory of Jesus. That's what a sign is in John. Like, like street signs alerting us to what's ahead. Jesus, is, Jesus designed his signs to, 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 to reveal his special glory to us. 
That's why John says, and manifested his glory. Manifested means made known, revealed, made clear. And in context here, it's it's no accident that John starts this book of signs with Jesus' pronouncement to Nathanael and all the others, that they will see heavens open and angels ascending and descending on him. And then he goes into the signs. Okay, These signs, starting with the very text here of water to wine, these are designed to show us he's the one. The, the, the encounter between Jacob and God in the Old Testament was just a shadow of now what Jesus is. He's the place and the person and the priest and the king through which we enter into heaven, the gate of heaven, the place of God's presence, the house of God, call it whatever you want. But all these signs are designed to reveal that to us. Okay? Except 10,000 times more precious than a rock in a place in, in Israel. So what does all that have to do with the story of a wedding before us? This wedding faux pas. Don't ever run out of wine at, at an Israelite wedding, apparently. Well, there's a wedding celebration. Somebody Jesus knew, or at least his mother knew. And Mary's invited. Jesus is invited as well, which suggests maybe he had a little bit of notoriety already. And the rest of his disciples. Andreas Kostenberger says, Jewish weddings were important and joyful occasions in the lives of the bride and groom and all their extended families, and even the entire community joining the celebration. Cain is not far from Nazareth, where Jesus is from. So the fact that he's included and the disciples tells us this is probably the wedding of a relative or a friend of some sort. And keep in mind, this is, sounds like a, a bride's worst nightmare, keep in mind that unlike today, Jewish weddings were not two or three hour celebrations. They were entire week long celebrations. Can you imagine planning for that? <laughs> um, they probably didn't have, they weren't as prim and proper as we are today probably. But <clears throat> And this is probably later on in the week because they wouldn't have run out of wine right away. They're, the guests are apparently consuming more than the, the groom had planned on people consuming, and they've run out. And in Jesus' wisdom and divine plan, he, he miraculously works out a way to please his mother, who asked him to do something about it, to honor the guests, to honor the bride and groom, who were expected to provide for the entire week, and to do all that almost covertly, right? Almost not secretly, but, but not right out there in your face for everybody to see. That's what happens. What's the point of that? And and more interesting, why does it take John 12 verses to tell us this? John calls it a sign. And he says that in doing this, in changing the water to wine, Jesus manifested, revealed, made known his glory. So that's our question. How did Jesus reveal his glory to us by changing water to wine in this story? Two ways. Number one, This is the easiest, most straightforward. His glory is manifested in that, simply put, Jesus has the ability to take water and turn it into wine. Aren't you glad you came for that tonight? (laughs) That's pretty easy, right? But, let's, let's pursue that for a while. Because there is a lot of glory here. Jesus turns the water into wine with no hocus pocus, with no shaking of his stick, you know, from water to wine, instantaneously, without anyone knowing it, without any big to-do, massive amounts of water, maybe up to 180 gallons, were instantly changed into wine. Now, understand, Just if I lost you, come back for a second, because you're going to think this is really interesting. I was blowing, having my mind blown this week as I was thinking about this. This is a molecular level change. Water to wine is a molecular level adjustment, Right? Water exists like this. Two hydrogen atoms connected by an oxygen atom, bonded together in the shape of an upside-down V. And, and of course, when atoms combine in that fashion, you have one molecule of water. That's one molecule. When millions of these molecules accumulate together, you can see visible water in whatever form it's in. Now, here's the mind-blowing part. One gram of water... So one gram of water, using the molecular mass of H2O, one gram of water is made up of 3.34 times 10 to the 22nd power number of molecules. If it's been a while since you were in math class, I wrote this on this board, 334 and then 20 zeros behind that number. That's a big number. 
That's how many molecules of H2O make up one gram of water. Let's say you wanted to count that high. Just get an idea of how many molecules. Say you, say, I'm going to count that high from 1 to 3, 4, 4 with 20 zeros behind it. If by some miracle you could count to 1 billion every second, like 1 Missouri, 2 Missouri, now you're on 2 billion, 3 billion. If you could count that, which obviously is ridiculously impossible. <clears throat> if you could count 1 billion every second, to count the molecules of H2O in 1 gram of water would take you, at the rate of 1 billion a second, 1 million years. In reality, the fastest you can actually count is about 250 per minute. At that rate, it would take you 272 trillion years, as fast as you could, to count the molecules of water in 1 gram of water. But Jesus didn't change 1 gram of water to wine. No, there are six massive stone jars. Each stone jar holds approximately 100 liters, John tells us. Take a gander at how many grams that is. It's about 600,000 grams. So to count the molecules of water, it would take 272 trillion years times 600,000. And with the sheer thought from the brain of Jesus, our Bethel, every single molecule of H2O was completely reconstituted. Its polarity changed. Some molecules went out of existence. New ones came into existence. And a completely new molecular structure replaces all 600,000 grams of water. They, they weren't just rearranged. It's not just a different form. It's an entirely different compound. It wasn't even H2O at all anymore. He just thought it. He, he didn't even say it. He just thought it. And it happened. It's amazing. That's our king. And it didn't take him a year to do it. We couldn't do that in a million years. We can't just make that happen. Of course, we can take grape juice and manipulate the processes of God naturally and create alcohol. But I'm glad we can't just say, become wine, actually. That would be really dangerous. But he didn't reach, you know, he didn't reach into his little black bag of tools. He didn't, he didn't shake a stick at the water. He just said, guys, go fill up the water. And it was done. Power. Right? Power and glory from the mind of our Lord, our Bethel. What, what's that? Just a word about natural law for a second. That's a phrase I'm sure you've heard of. Natural law. And in theological circles, natural law refers to, and uh, I'm sure we could give a lecture on this probably, but uh, refers to the, 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 the order of things that, that, is, that is written on creation. The way that things work. The laws of nature. <clears throat> the laws of the universe are laws in so much as God almost always chooses to make molecules persist in the state they were in unless there is energy applied to them. That sounded more confusing when I said it than when I wrote it. <laughs> in other words, the laws of nature are laws in that this is usually the way things work. Okay? But they are not laws beyond that. Laws of physics, I think, personally, would better be called the habits of God or the pattern of God. When a, draw, when a ball is dropped from a two-story building, God usually causes the gravitational force of the nearest large body, which would be the Earth, to bring that ball down at 9.8 meters per second acceleration rate. That's usually what he causes to happen. But one time, Jesus was standing on a mount after he'd resurrected, and without a rocket booster without bird wings and without a helicopter, he just ascended into heaven. He's gone. Just lifted straight up. No propellers, no nothing, no hidden crane, no magic trick. He simply decided to suspend his usual habit called that we call gravity. That's it. Another time he decided he wanted to cross a lake. The boats were gone. It's late. I don't really want to walk 40 miles around this lake. I'll just walk across it. <laughs> Remember this? And so he chooses by his own volition to make the water surface tension much stronger than it usually is, and he walks across. We call that a miracle. It, it is a miracle. 
But miracle in the sense of Jesus caused things to work a little differently than he usually causes things to work. That he's always causing things to work. That's the point. I, I just don't want you to have this distant view of God like the sort of, the, the sort of deist view that some of our forefathers had. Uh, God started the world, set up some laws, and every once in a while he might intervene, but otherwise it's going pretty well. There's, no, there's no, there is a transcendent God. He's transcendent because he's holy, but he's also imminent in that gravity is sustained at this very moment by the hand of God. And he could just as easily decide to not sustain it for a moment or for the rest of eternity. It's, so, so he's not bound by laws. He, he sort of is the law, which he's free to break at any moment. I think about it like this because it puts all the power in God. He's always sustaining everything. There's no impersonal law of nature. Gravity is a name we use to describe what God usually causes to happen. And and the really glorious thing here is that Jesus himself manifests that same universal power over the rules of creation right here. He doesn't speak words. He doesn't yell at the water. Just power exudes from his brain, authority oozing from his thoughts, completely suspends what we know as laws. Like Laws like if you have a jar of water and you turn around and touch your toes and do jumping jacks and put a scoop in the water, it's still water, right? Except not if Jesus decides it isn't. Isn't he powerful? So what does this mean at, at the heart level for us? Well, most kings are pretty powerful. They can issue decrees. They can raise taxes. They can send us off to war, fight battles and have people killed, and even spare lives. But our king, (laughs) his thought determines whether a particle goes this way or that way. His thought determines whether a particle continues to be a molecule of water or a wine molecule. Whether gravity pushes or pulls. Whether humans sink in water or rise on the surface. Whether a dead heart stays dead or lifts. It's completely at the volition of our king. And now the commands of scripture kind of come into full view. Don't be anxious about anything, God says. Really? About nothing? Like, I mean, what if I'm out of money and I've got bills piling up on the kitchen counter? Or what if I'm standing on a cliff and somebody's getting ready to push me off because I said I love Jesus? Or what if my son's lying in a bed with cancer terminal diagnosis and the doctor says he's breathing his last breath? Don't be anxious about anything. The universe answers to God. Particularly to our King, our Bethel, our Jesus. Cancer cells answer to Jesus, don't they? Tumors grow because Jesus lets them. And with the thought from his brain and a word from his mouth, cancer cells become a fully functional liver. Or they can stay cancer cells. But they hearken to one master alone. And that master is our beloved King Jesus. The one and same King, by the way, who pursued us to his own grave and back. Right? The one and same King who said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust me. Trust God. John 14. So we trust him. He is neither powerless nor careless. He has demonstrated both. He cares and he's powerful. He can make the water in your life wine. He can make the sweet wine in your life into useless water and devastate But either way, he is always and only good. He is always and only good. So there we have it. The power of Jesus in changing the water to wine shows his glory. Does it not? Do you see him as glorious? It's a sign to manifest his glory. But there's one more sense, and I'll I'll keep this one brief. There's one more sense in which this deed was a sign. There's at least one more truth here about the glory of Jesus that that this miracle manifested. This reminded me of something. Um, On Jessica's second Mother's Day. See, on her first Mother's Day, I really dropped the ball. I didn't know she was going to be a mother. Didn't know she was going to go into labor on Mother's Day and have the baby on Mother's Day. So we were, I didn't get her a present. <laughs> we, were, uh, we went to the birth clinic in Columbia. She gave birth on, us on Mother's Day Sunday. 
And we came home, and I had to stop at the grocery store on the way home and get her a present just so I could, you know, honor that. But the second Mother's Day, I, I, had, I was ready this time, and um, I went to the store, and I got a card from myself to her, like a sappy, you know, husband wife card. But I also got a second card, one from Corbin. You know, I got him a court card and signed it for him. And I remember this card very well. I think she does too. We talked about it recently. <clears throat> on the front, it said something like, Mom, I know I've been a real terror this year. I know it's been incredibly hard and life's been rough, but, and you got to understand, life was really hard. Corbin was a terrible baby. I love him to death, but he was, uh, we thought Eden was just like, you know, angelic choir singing because he had really bad colic and nobody could help us. Nobody would hold him. Nobody could watch him. He just screamed and it was terrible. So here's this card. I know I've been really bad this year. I know life's been so tough, but... You open up the card, and uh, and Randy Bachman's song starts playing. You ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> Baby, you ain't seen nothing yet. And that was so true, Corbin. That's, that's the message of this sign from Jesus. Guys, you ain't seen nothing yet. Or to put it slightly better, and I really like this. With Jesus, the best is always yet to come. I know that sounds strikingly bumper stickerific, but I think it's spot on. With Jesus, you ain't seen nothing yet. The best is always yet to come. There's a reason. And you don't ask these kind of questions until you have the, the, the blessing of spending a couple of weeks on one paragraph, right? You don't, but it just finally occurred to me, why does John not stop the story in verse 8? The story could have easily quit. The servants did what he said. They filled the jars with water. They drew it out. Bam! It's wine. Everybody's happy. The guests are taken care of. The sign is glorious. He did it. He changed the water to wine. Sign completed. But as John retells the story, you're just over halfway done. The miracle's already happened. Why the dialogue? He goes on to tell us about how surprised the master of ceremonies is when he tastes the wine. Then he goes to confront the bridegroom, and he he almost, not really, almost, he does. He he mildly rebukes the the groom with a comment on the supremacy and excellency of this this latter wine that he's just now tasted. What is that? Is that just narrative filler or what? No, I think this is part of the sign. This is part of what makes this a sign that reveals his glory. Think back to verse 6. John was very explicit in verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Very explicit to tell us why these six jars were there and what kind of jars they are, isn't it? These purification jars would have been used for the washing, the, the ritual washing of people's hands or the washing of dishes. These are part of the Jewish elaborate scheme to remain ceremonially clean before God. That's why these jars are here to cleanse themselves before God, to stay clean. They represent, in a nutshell, in a water jar, all the Jewish attempts to make themselves right with God. But here comes Jesus. He turns their useless water into sweet wine. And the master is shocked. Oh my goodness. You can almost see him, he takes a drink and, and chokes on it almost. This is really good wine. Uh, as a, it, maybe he's a professional, maybe he's just a, sort of like the best man equivalent, but this is really good wine. The reason this glorified bartender was so shocked is because of his expectations. This is why I'm so shocked. He has the expectations of the world. He has the same expectations that we have about life and about our world. Okay. At a party, you have the expectation, they did anyway, I won't say that you do, I don't know, maybe you do, I hope not. But they had the expectation that uh, for a week-long celebration, people are going to consume quite a bit of alcohol. And this is going to be very costly. And the longer you age wine and, and store it and all that, it's going to get more expensive. So, so it's also, you might not know this, probably you do, but... The more you consume, the less you taste. Right? Alcohol has a very numbing effect, which is why people love it so much. It just sort of numbs you. And if you're 
you know, if you had a bad day or whatever, just, just feel that numbing effect. And so, yeah, the first glass, you taste it in all its robustness and fullness. The second glass, a little bit less. The third, less so. On and on and on it goes. So the expectation at the party is serve the really good stuff when everybody can appreciate it and taper it off with the, the, the worse and worse stuff, right? The cheaper stuff. Think wine in a box, right? Like the, just the, the stuff that's not really worth anything, but people won't know because they've already had too much to drink. That's what, that's what the, the chief, whatever you want to call them, the chief master of ceremonies expected. The best tapering off to worse. Same thing in Israel. Israel had the same sort of expectations. Israel was plagued at this time with this oh the former days attitude which we've talked about before but you know oh the former days they were so wonderful I just just wish we could go back to the former days when everything was great and people could fly and I mean there was nobody ever got hurt it was just wonderful back then you know how things get better and better as they get farther in the past they longed for that they longed for the restoration of the former days the glorious days just think through Israel's history. You've got, you've got Abraham who's called out and then God quickly begins to give him a nation of people. So that's sort of the bottom, right? That's the start. He gets called, very special blessing. Um, God's building up his people in Exodus. He delivers them, redeems them, adopts them, gives them their law, gives them rest in the promised land, leads them in, gives them a king, and the king takes their boundaries to the farthest will be. That's the top. In Israel's mind, that's when things start to come back down. And they do, honestly, in a biblical, theological, you know, or in, in an Old Testament perspective, read the Old Testament, that's really the apex, the climax of the Old Covenant. David and Solomon, right? David takes the boundaries farther than the level be ever be, passes it on to his son, and at least initially anyway, Solomon experiences peace and prosperity and holiness for a while. And that is the golden era of the Old Testament, of the land of Israel. Everything seems to head downhill from there. And forever, forever, today, forever, those people are still looking back saying, Oh, if we could just have that again. It was perfect. It was so great. We had a wonderful king who led us powerfully and protected us and provided for us. We had all this land and things were great. We had a temple made of gold. It was beautiful. That was it, man. And when the Messiah comes, he's going to bring that back. When the Messiah comes, he's going to rebuild that temple. And he's going to sit on the throne. He's going to take back our land that's rightfully ours. He's going to protect us and provide for us. That was our expectation. But imagine the shock of the head of ceremonies when he tastes the wine. He's supposed to taste, you know, he's supposed to taste it to make sure it's acceptable, make sure it's not disgusting or anything like that. He's expecting mediocre wine. And he's shocked that this is perhaps the best wine he's ever had. Something's wrong here. This is weird. He, he had the first wine. He's expecting the second to come in somewhere around here, at best, you know, in this range. And yet it far exceeds his expectations. And so the message to Israel here is the exact same. Guys, if you were expecting me to come and bring you back somewhere in this region, you're dead wrong. You're dead wrong. i got news for you. I am going to come and restore the boundaries of Israel but it ain't what you think. It's not from the Mediterranean to the Jordan. It's from one end of the globe to the other. It's from the farthest star of the universe to the other farthest star of the universe. It's all mine, right? And God says, I'll have people from every tribe, tongue, and language, and nation on earth worshiping me under my throne. That's the, that's the kingdom that Jesus is building. Those are the boundaries to his kingdom. They have no boundaries. Right? You think I'm going to come and reign as king? <clears throat> Well, I am, but I'm not going to sit on a little wooden throne that you've built for me and play with the Romans. I'm going to sit enthroned at the right hand of God, sovereign over all of existence. And one day, every knee will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Every knee. That's the kind of king I'm going to be. 
You think I'm going to bring judgment? I am. <laughs> but not like you're expecting. I'm not going to go chase out all of your enemies. I'm not going to go be your big brother. I'm going to call every single person to account for their lives. Stand before me, laid bare, and bring judgment for the glory of God. <clears throat> you think I'm going to restore your relationship with God? I am. But not like you've ever experienced before. No more coming into coming up to a little building and and seeing afar a cloud representing God's presence. Now, boldly, confidently, we approach the throne of mercy with boldness and confidence through the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Now we stand before His presence without any lamb from our flocks. You don't bring your cow to church. We don't slit any throats at the door. We just come. We just come forever and always. And one day we're going to stand before Him with no cow, with no blood, with nothing. We're going to stand before Him naked and, and, and completely exposed and perfect and blameless and spotless and without wrinkle. Why? Because, yes, I'm restoring your relationship with God. I'm doing it all the way. This is the sign. The, the master of ceremonies didn't know the best was yet to come. Israel didn't know the best was yet to come. And in our lives, this is just as applicable to us as it was to them. I mean, evangelistically, let's think about it from three quick perspectives. About five minutes left. Evangelistically, we have a message to people and their hopelessness. In Christ, the best for you is yet to come. No matter how hopeless. I know a guy, um, I know a guy at my last church, he didn't come to our church, but he lived just behind it a few houses. He was backing his semi, his semi truck driver was backing his truck up, and he rolled over his two year old son and killed him. And I don't think he was a believer. And I I could say with confidence to him, in Christ for you, there's better. The best is yet to come. It's not, it's not the bringing back your son to life that would be the best thing for you. There's actually better in Christ. For him, there's, you see what I mean? And no matter how hopeless somebody is, evangelistically, you can always tell them the best is yet to come if you come to Christ. But, but even as Christians, too, we need to, if there's anything you take home today, let it be this. Deplore in yourself that attitude, that heart of, oh, the former days. Put that to death. Just kill that. It's off-theological. It's, it's, it's borderline heretical heresy and evil in our hearts and telling us that. Because Ecclesiastes 7.10, first of all, says, Say not, why were the former days better than these, for it's not of wisdom that you ask this. That's a pretty clear command, right? Do not say that. From God, sign Jesus. <clears throat> Don't say that for that. But, but, but more than that, if you're in Christ, then, yes, we don't know what 2012 holds for you guys. I don't know. I'm reading a book right now about a, a young missionary who, got, who, who died at my age. Actually, he was 28 when he died. 28, 29, I don't remember. But um, he almost could be dead in the next year. It's just reality. If we don't acknowledge that and embrace that, we haven't read the Bible. I mean, we could be dead, right? We don't know what this next year holds. It probably holds, according to Jesus, trials, sufferings, and hardships. Crushed, knocked down, persecuted. These are words used of us. I mean, we ought to expect that's going to be that kind of banner year, right? And yet, we can, I can tell you, this next year, the best is yet to come if you're in Christ. You know how I know that? Because Philippians says, it's God who works in us to will and work for His good pleasure. And His good pleasure is that you would know and love His Son. So if you're in Christ, next year, as He leads you closer to glory, He's revealing His Son to and in you more and more and more. And that is the ultimate good. That's the ultimate good. That's happening in your life if you're in Christ. Next year you'll have at least a slightly better understanding of who Jesus is. 
maybe vastly depending on how much persecution you go through. But uh, you'll have a better, slightly deeper, slightly sweeter, slightly fuller, slightly deeper understanding of the King of Glory. And that will be good. For Jesus, the best is always yet to come. This this makes Christ unique. Boy, I couldn't help thinking about this. And after we die, or let's say Christ comes back, and heaven is on earth, new heavens, new earth, we're there, we've spent our first week in glory. You've been there seven days in glory, in the new heavens and new earth, okay? And we're just kind of getting acquainted, we're getting acclimated, like, where do I live, where do I do, where do I work, all this stuff. Do I have to go to the bathroom still? I have that big question for me, I don't know yet. We're figuring out how all this works. And after the first week, and the first month, and then two months, and then a year, a year in, guess what? It's not wearing off. It's not like most places. You know, most, not most places, all places. I think you can say it without exception. All places, you spend long enough there, the newness wears off, doesn't it? You start to lose a little bit of your eye for the beauty and gloriousness of it. People come to visit and say, wow, you live here? And you're like, yeah, I just kind of got used to it. You know, waking up and seeing the ocean or seeing the mountains or whatever. You can, it, it wears on us, it gets used to us, and we kind of get dead to it a little bit, a little bit over time. Not so with glory. Not so. Because Jesus is there. And Jesus alone has this, unique, this one thing that makes Him unique and all of creation. And this is the whole point of this sermon. That the more you know Him, the more you love Him, period. If you're His, the more you know Him, the more you see Him, the more you hear Him, the more you love Him. That's how it works if you're in Christ. So after you've been there seven days, you love him seven days more. And you want him seven days more. And after you've been there a year, your understanding of him has increased a year. But in that whole year, you haven't found one thing to dislike in him. He doesn't annoy you. There's nothing irritating. It's not like marriage where after 50 years, something really is wearing on you that's really annoying. I wish you'd do that. And sort of the puppy dog loves wore off. This is, this is sort of the inverse relationship. That the more we know Him, the bigger capacity we have to be satisfied in Him. And so the longer we're there, the more we want Him. The longer that we're there, the more pleased we are with Him. It's going the other direction. So after we've been there 10,000 years bright shining at the sun, yeah, we've no less days to sing His praise, we love Him 10,000 times more. The best is always yet to come. A million years into eternity, that's still true with Jesus. Because we never plumb the depths of who He is, right? And the more we know Him, the bigger our capacity gets. So, this is a great word for me. I hope that encourages you. In Christ, the best is yet to come. Today, today, every moment you're outside in the month of June or July or August, the sun is beating down on you and you just feel that hot stickiness. And it's just it's a constant reminder of the, the hotness of the month and the, the bright sun. John says, we'll have no need for the sun, for the Lord will be our glory sun. Right? He will be our light. And into eternity future, every ray from the bright presence of God's glory will make us love and want Him more and be more and more and more satisfied. So somehow, after 10,000 years, I'm going to be more satisfied than I already perfectly was 9,000 years before that. I don't know. I don't get it. Except that my capacity to be satisfied gets bigger and bigger. Forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your son for our Bethel. Let him be 10,000 times more precious to us than any land has ever been to any person, than any rock, than any special place, than any person even. Let Christ be supremely precious and valuable to us. And comfort us tonight, Lord. Comfort us in our trials, in our where the, the places that we're hurting in life with the chronic sicknesses that we struggle with. 
with the financial issues that we struggle with, with the relationship issues we struggle with. Lord, help us be comforted and satisfied in Jesus as the supreme treasure of the universe, as the most glorious king that ever was or ever will be, and and reassure us with this glorious truth that in Christ the best is yet to come. We love you, Lord. Amen.